0: Ladies and gentlemen, you have stumbled upon the John... <clears throat> I mean, sorry. Johnny, I apologize. I forgot you were there. This is Vitamin J. Jay, I didn't even know you were in town. Good to see you. I'm over here in my unit, isolated, and alone. I'm like a single mother. This is the Vitamin J Talks Movies Podcast. I drove an $80,000 BMW. Don't look at me. I'm hideous. Oh, man, I made this for you guys. I'm a not the I don't think.
1: I'm as mad as hell. Will you shut up?
0: Welcome back to the fourth episode of the Vitamin J Talks Movies podcast. I have a rather crowded studio with me. In the studio is, well, I don't really know what to call him. I wasn't trying to be aloof with last week's episode. I was trying to figure out what would be his radio name because we couldn't seem to land on the right name. So,
1: well, after... A lot of deliberation and a lot of thought. What I came up with came out of left field as I was getting my coffee from Sheets this morning. And somebody a lot younger than me says, here you go, Pops. I'm like, what did you say? Here's your coffee, Pops. And seeing that I am the oldest guy on the dock and my son calls me that, I might as well be called Pops.
0: All right. I like it. I would have gone with Crackle or Snap, but Pops is all right as well. It'll do. That'll do, pig. What was that? What was that from? Oh, shoot. Yeah, I've heard it. We also weren't trying to be aloof last week when we said we hadn't come up with the right movie to review. We were in the process. We had narrowed it down to a couple of films, but I think we finally landed on two films. The first of those films being Colors, directed by Dennis Hopper, released in 1988. And the second of those films was The Rookie, directed by Clint Eastwood, with Charlie Sheen, released in 1990. Both are police dramas. Both are set up pretty similarly. They both have a two-hour runtime, and they both take place in East LA. They share a lot of similarities, but at the same time, there's a lot of things that differentiate the two films. It was so funny. We had a conversation and I told Pops, I didn't want to talk to him at all about the two films during the week. I wanted to go into the podcast fresh so we wouldn't have each other's thoughts to kind of taint our view respectively of each film, but I couldn't do it. After I watched Colors and before I had watched The Rookie, I sat down and I said, Pops, did you hate it as much as I did? Did you find any redeeming quality in it? To which he responded, no, no. No, I did not. And it wasn't until I got done with The Rookie that I actually found the redeeming qualities in colors. So it's going to be a little bit of a different episode. I try to find the nuances. I try to find the positivity. I try to find the places in two films where they're pointed in the right direction, where there's opportunity. Like I've said in previous podcasts, both in season one and in the past couple of episodes, sometimes when you watch a bad film, it lends itself to a better conversation at the end of it. Because a good film, if done right, wraps up all the loose ends, covers all the bases it needs to cover, and leaves very little opportunity for improvement? Maybe this will be a good conversation. Maybe picking two bad films inadvertently will end up making for a better podcast. We'll let you know.
1: Before we begin, I'd be remiss if I didn't preface everything I'm about to say in this movie review with, I am not a film aficionado. I don't have a vast library of movie titles. Maybe I have five movies. That's it. And it's certainly not categorized in any order, in any fashion. I am not a critically trained eye in all things cinema. I'm just an everyman looking at movies.
0: I understand you're trying to take a couple of pot shots at me and you can go to hell with those. But at the same time, I brought you on the show for a couple of reasons. And I talked about it in last week's episode. You have a unique way of looking at things and you're a relatively smart person. You struggle with it sometimes with how to communicate and how to best say things. When you take the time and you think it through, you're one of the most intelligent people. You're just not the quickest person. And that's not a slight against you at all, but it makes for a very unique thing. Because I think when I sit down and I watch a film, I'm very quick to judge. I'm very quick. Quick to do this and so it sometimes jades my opinion whereas I think you are going to sit back you're going to have that poker face on you're going to let the film or let the situation or whatever it is you're going to let it play out you're going to think on it you're going to stew on it and then you're going to come back and you're going to have your reaction again going back to last week's episode that and your ability to always take the opposite point of view are the two things that will make this a unique podcast and make you a unique guest on the Vitamin J Talks Movies podcast.
1: It's funny you say that because I went back and watched colors last night and I know what I said yesterday about how I found no redeeming value. And after watching it again overnight, I flipped the script. I like it. Sorry.
0: No, I'm glad you had the change of heart. I'm glad you rewatched it. I didn't go back and rewatch it. What I did was I went back and watched a couple of scenes. I wanted to reaffirm a couple of things that I had seen and a couple of things that I had thought when I initially watched it the first time through. I haven't talked about it before, but I'm a huge not Clint Eastwood fan. I own one of his movies. And one of those movies is J. Edgar with Leonardo DiCaprio. I bought it at a pawn store in Henderson, North Carolina. Vance County. Cam- if you ever get in that part of the world get the hell out and I only paid a dollar for it i mean it was one of like 30 movies i think i bought that day so i can't really say i sought it out and i think if i had taken the time to flip it over and realize that he had directed it i'd have probably put it back on the shelf i'm not a big fan of clint eastwood for me to pick a clint eastwood film is kind of tough for me but what i wanted to do was i wanted to be fair to clint eastwood and to a lot of the people especially that both pops and i work with that like clint eastwood and like him for grand torino billion dollar million dollar baby i don't know is it mil- billion million? it's it's quite- Quadrillion. Quadrillion. Google. I mean, it's a lot of money on Hillary Swank. Why? I don't know. Anyway, you got The Good, The Bad, The Ugly, Lone Wolf McQuaid. Unforgiven. Unforgiven. You've got a lot of films that I've systematically avoided up to this point. And I wanted to be fair to Clint Eastwood, whether I liked The Rookie or not. This is before I watched it. I wanted to be fair to that film, get another Clint Eastwood film under my belt so that I could come in and maybe have a little bit better and average opinion of Clint Eastwood as opposed to letting one film completely change my perspective and or reaffirm my perspective. So as you can tell what we've already kind of hinted at, we didn't really have a strong opinion of The Rookie, but I gotta say there were actually more positives that I pulled from the film than I thought there would be. So know this. I know I'm going into the film Jaded. I know I'm going into the situation Jaded, and I talked about it all the time, about the preconceived notions and how they're very hard to overcome. So I tried very hard, knowing that I didn't have the time to get a movie like Grand Torino or The Unforgiven under my belt to help sway my opinion of Clint Eastwood both as actor and a director that I tried to go in as clear as possible and take the film at face value and have no outside distractions.
1: Let's just, after all that, the fact that you picked the rookie unknowingly turned out to be unfair to Clint Eastwood.
0: Yeah, I can say that, but I know we talked about, let's do colors first, but let's go ahead and tackle the rookie first since we're already in it. Sure. Let's do it. When the film opened up and got started, I said to myself, this is actually shot really well. And I know that's comparing apples and oranges when we're looking at colors and when looking at the rookie, because they were shot with two completely different budgets and they were shot trying to give a different feel. But whoever the director of photography was for The Rookie did a phenomenal job. The prevailing style throughout the movie was almost complete blackness and only natural light in the setting that would light the scene. So you had the film opened up with car thieves jacking cars from a valet station. Go up to the valet station, grab the keys, grab a nice car, drive off into this alley, get on a car hauler. Once the car hauler filled up, you insinuated that they were going to take the car somewhere and chop them, as was a big thing back in LA and to this day, still a big thing in large cities. They relied a lot on very dark scenes that were lit by a street light, lit by car light, lit by restaurant light. It was very dark. It flowed very well. The one issue I had with that way of shooting was there were two scenes and I don't have them in my notes in front of me. There was one scene particularly that that really was very jarring and took you out of that action. While it was a good, unique, different way of of looking at a film from a director of photography standpoint point, that situation, when Clint Eastwood rubber-stamped it, he should have said, you know what, I need to introduce another secondary source of light to lighten the scene up, because the scene made no sense. It took you actually 20 minutes of runtime later to realize where the film was going. So Charlie Sheen's character opens a refrigerator, grabs a beer, closes the refrigerator, and then cranks a motorcycle and drives off. And you're like, what room in anyone's house anywhere is there a damn refrigerator and a motorcycle? It made no sense whatsoever, and I was trying my best to understand. Refrigerator, motorcycle. Refrigerator, motorcycle. So then I thought, okay, it had to have been a garage. Whose garage? Because we know that Charlie Sheen's character lives in an apartment. 20 minutes later, you get confirmation because Charlie Sheen tells Pulaski, Clint Eastwood's character, hey, I borrowed your bike. I destroyed the hell out of it, but it's nothing I can't fix.
1: What the hell? I've got one of those.
0: A Clint Eastwood, a Charlie Sheen, a motorcycle
1: or a refrigerator. Right. Charlie Sheen burns down the bar at night. Then he rides off to go find the bad guy that he's looking for. He ends up somewhere eh, 10 miles from the bar in the middle of the day. How did that happen? (laughs)
0: No, exactly. And you know what I found so funny was they were trying to be so deliberate with some of the things. And Charlie Sheen's character had that. You could see he had that thought like, do I promote safety and put the helmet on? Or do I drop the helmet dramatically and drive off? And we drop the helmet dramatically and ride off. At that point, like, there's no more Mr. Nice Guy. The rookie is now veteran.
1: Right, right.
0: That was stupid as hell.
1: Yeah, go to hell, safety.
0: <laughs> go Go to hell. <laughs> So I think the major problem with the film it checked off all the boxes it was very formulaic it did nothing different the character that Clint Eastwood portrayed you could very easily imagine that person wearing a cowboy hat riding a horse it was very unrealistic no cop anywhere under any circumstances would behave in that way no bad guy would react in that way and we got that like I said from the first 3 minutes in the film yeah it was really cool that it was shot dark it was shot with those cars the cars got on the holler but then you get Clint Eastwood and his partner they ride up they They've been following these guys for this amount of time. It didn't make a whole lot of sense. I understand you're probably not supposed to try to attach sense to a lot of the situations that the rookie found itself in, but the the partner goes up to the cab of the truck, knocks on the cab, never introduces himself as a police officer, doesn't have his badge, doesn't have a flashlight, doesn't have his gun pointed. The two of them, prior to going in, Clint Eastwood's character makes the comment that, hey, only a couple more minutes, and I assume that means that they're going to wait until they get backup. No, they're going to go in vigilante, western style. Again, all you got to do is just put a cowboy hat on him and he's in a western and then he gets shot because the guy had time to go around the vehicle and position himself at the partner's flank and shot the partner and the partner died very unrealistic and then we had this very over the top scene where the ramp was down the hauler was going down the street and Clint Eastwood was following him and keeping up with him and then they were letting cars off and stuff was exploding again a lot like beyond the door three two weeks ago a lot of misallocated budget in the rookie
1: about Clint Eastwood's partner that guy deserved what he had coming how does he open the door and then just peek in and decide oh I'm done there's nobody here without going around the front of the freaking tractor come on buddy you're not the rookie now along the same light how is a 50 car pileup a plane crash and a shootout in an airport why all that to catch a car thief talk about overblown unrealistic that's not Osama bin Laden he's a car thief
0: exactly and if he is such the bad guy to your point precisely. If he is the bad guy that Clint Eastwood and Charlie Sheen's character make him out to be, then why is it the only the two of them are after him? You get reference to the fact that they are in the burglary division of the LAPD. You get that there is a carjacking and a Grand Theft Auto and a homicide department in the LA Police Department that's actively working on similar cases. So why is it that it's left to two lowly burglary detectives to take down this entire empire of a car shop?
1: Now, bringing up the bad guy, Raul Julia. He's an okay actor and He's Puerto Rican, which is not a problem until you try to get a Puerto Rican to play a German car thief with a German accent. That just completely destroyed the movie for me. I couldn't get past that. Not one bit. It was just torture hearing him talk. He reminded me of something, and I couldn't put my finger on it until later. That guy sounded like Jack Black in Nacho Libre. Yeah, that accent was just hideous. I couldn't take it. I almost stopped the movie at his first scene. I just couldn't do it.
0: It's like I've talked about with Tomorrow Never Dies last week. I was waiting for confirmation because I was not as keen on it as you were when you watched it the first time through. I wasn't sure if he was trying to have a German accent or what, but I'm sitting here looking at him saying he obviously looks Latino. He's got a bunch of Latinos working for him, so I just assumed he was retarded or... had some type of a speech impediment until I got closer to the end and I think they were in the airport and they stopped for one brief interaction and he said something about Germany and making reference to the fact that Clint Eastwood's character was a Polak and how he was going to suffer the same fate that the Polak suffered.
1: Yeah, it was just hideous. How is a German car thief running a car dealing syndicate in East LA with a bunch of Mexicans?
0: And that's exactly why I thought, I thought to myself, he has to be a Latino because that's the only way this makes any sense whatsoever.
1: Yeah, that was just absurd.
0: Remember we were talking before the show about the two jokes in the movie that didn't work and one of them Charlie Sheen's girlfriend shoots the bad guy and he says Charlie Sheen's character gets very angry at her and says why did you kill him I needed him alive he said next time aim for the kneecaps and she said I was aiming for the kneecaps to which Charlie Sheen's character went from really mad to oh okay at least you were justified and hugged her and that was the end of it and then towards the end Clint Eastwood's character said to Charlie Sheen's character why did you kill him you should have shot him in the head or shot him in the kneecap or something to which Charlie Sheen replied well I was aiming for that but I missed it was that type of humor that what I like to call non-existent humor that prevailed in that movie. The scene that I was trying to think about that had the other joke was the scene where they made fun of Latino taste in cars when they had that Lamborghini Countach that was painted in that bright green color. They made reference to it when they went into the chop shop for the first time to spot the place out, the rookie and Clint Eastwood's character, Pulowski. And then they referenced it at the end with Charlie Sheen and his girlfriend when the car was parked in the parking lot when the Latino operative was acting as the police chief at the time. And it didn't make me laugh didn't make me smile it made me cry it made me cry for so many reasons and that's not an emotion that was actually the only emotion in the film was me crying at their attempts at humor
1: well how about when charlie sheen walked into the cleaners and he said candy gram for mr mongo what
0: the hell was that
1: right and then when uh the police sergeant is looking for volunteers to go after charlie sheen and he yells out the door it's not just a job it's an adventure
0: speaking of those two characters right quick because that scene right there reminded me of it you had the black gentleman and then you had garcia the police chief or the head of detectives or whatever he was you could tell and i think maybe this is just jaded my opinion you can tell these guys are voice actors primarily i've heard their voices and other things so they're very animated with the way they talk and it was leading to them being way too animated with what they were saying and how they were saying it and that scene right there it zooms in really close on his face and he goes it's not just a job it's an adventure and you're just like what in the absolute hell that made no sense whatsoever it was overacted and why did Clint Eastwood the director not Clint Eastwood the crappy actor why did Clint Eastwood the director choose to zoom in on his face i.e. like we talked about with last week's episode that tight framing highlighting the importance it really put a spotlight on something that should not have been spotlighted
1: right now I've got another scene Where Charlie Sheen goes back to the bar to raise some hell, and the pit bulls get into the fray. The first pit bull knocks Charlie Sheen over, and he's biting the hell out of him. And he takes his gun out, and he hits him in the face, laying down on his back. He throws the freaking pit bull. What's a full-grown pit bull? 50, 60 pounds? Yeah, He launches them across the room over the bar. How do you do that?
0: So I think that highlights really the three primary problems with a rookie from my perspective. That was, it was nothing but pure testosterone. They just filmed pure testosterone. They had a very formulaic thing. It ended just the same way it started. And then one of my similar critiques that I had with colors that we'll talk about here in a minute was it had these loose ends and these weird non-sequiturs that were never addressed later on in the film. Charlie Sheen's character towards the beginning, he comes out and he's being questioned. And the questions start to get more direct and more weird. Why did you kill your brother? Blah, blah, blah. And he wakes up and realizes it was all a nightmare. That was the last outside of a line between he and his father later on in the film. There was no other mention of it. So again, it was that weird non sequitur that I want to fault the director Clint Eastwood for having done, but that may have just been poor editing. That may have been a reshoot. It may have been something else, but it was a weird non sequitur. And there were several of those along the way. And they force you to catalog information that you think is going to be relevant at a much later time, but never was relevant it was more frustrating when you realized okay i thought i was getting something more i thought i was getting some meaning some point to all this nope it was just over the top action over the top inattentiveness to emotion and it was just very dumb very dumb there were two odd sex scenes one in each film i'd like to go ahead and take the opportunity now to talk about the weird sex scene from the rookie pops would you like to take it away on that one
1: yeah as far as sex scenes go that was uh wasn't much of a sex scene in fact it was just a little disturbing and off-putting
0: yeah and you know what it, highlighted for me was I was on the fence again like I always say I like to to reserve judgment until I get affirmation somewhere on the screen of something but what that sex scene really was in The Rookie was affirmation of how big Clint Eastwood's ego really is he thinks he's so attractive that here's this trained assassin woman that can't hold herself from taking advantage of him in that situation it was so stupid could have been done without again like we said before those non-sequiturs that led to nothing what was the point of that it wasn't erotic it wasn't humiliating because he was unfazed by the entire situation so you think why was that written in there why was that added in there and the only conclusion I can come up with is it was as a result of Clint Eastwood's ego who else would said that's going to be a good scene how did that add value to that character how did that add value to the plot or the situations anything and I think that for me was that secondary affirmation that that was an extension of Clint Eastwood's opinion of himself as it compares to him and his attraction from women one other thing that stuck out for me in the rookie uh, that we'll talk about with colors that to me was a little jarring was the music and when I say music music. I don't really mean music because there was no actual legitimate music. It was all composed from a composer and made for those shots. And I don't know if you guys have seen or recall Forgetting Sarah Marshall and David Bretter's talking about making music for the show that Sarah Marshall is on and then it's not really music. It's just ominous tones. Bang! Bong! That's exactly what the music was in The Rookie. It was intrusive. Most times, I would say probably about 50% of the time, it hid in the background and it was perfectly fine in the background. It didn't add anything, it didn't take away. But then there were those couple of moments where it was too jarring, it was too loud, it didn't make any sense, it was too much. And then when the film ended, that song that played over the credits, again, was a pre-composed song, was too happy, too upbeat, it didn't fit the mood at all. So again, it added to the confusion of what should I feel? What is my take-home message? What, what am I taking from this film and putting away for later? It didn't give you anything. It was very jarring. Again, they spent their budget on blowing up cars, blowing up planes, shooting things, all this other stuff, and they didn't have a budget left for music, they didn't have a budget left for an actual director that would say, hey, that's stupid. We're not going to do that. They didn't have a script supervisor that would say, hey, that's a non-sequitur. That doesn't make any sense. Or, hey, you've got this tie-in that you introduced in the first five minutes of the film. Why don't you bring that as a motivating factor for this character? There were a lot of things I think could have been retooled and redone a little bit better, but at the end of the day, I don't know that that was a worthy endeavor. I don't think it was worthy for us to go back and try to retool that film. Just put it in the trash can because it's so formulaic. It's not bringing anything new to the genre. It didn't give me at all a slice of East L.A. in the early 90s slash late 80s. So I think that's a film that just, call that a mulligan.
1: I'd say that's the hamburger helper of movies.
0: On my way into the studio today, I was thinking to myself, who do we work with? Who collectively do you and I work with that would watch The Rookie and enjoy The Rookie? And I only came up with one name. I then immediately thought, nope, he would not like that movie. So I'm curious to see what would be your opinion. Who Of everyone that we work with, of the 50 or so people that we work with, who do you think would watch and enjoy The Rookie?
1: Maybe one person. And I think we may be thinking about the same person. That's a coin flip. I really don't see anybody liking this. I mean, no one. It's just this movie's god-awful are
0: you thinking Tyndall yes yeah I was thinking Tyndall as well and I agree I don't think even he would get frustrated with it and turn it off and just go outside and drink a
1: he'd drink another beer to forget that he just watched that. <laughs>
0: Did we cover all your notes on The Rookie?
1: Yeah, we covered most everything. I mean, again, after Raul Julia started speaking, I was done. I had tapped out. What the fuck?
0: So our second movie that we tackled for this week was the movie Colors. That was the primary film that he and I had circled and said we wanted to watch. For Pops, the motivation was, he remembered watching this film, he grew up in East L.A. in the 80s.
1: Uh, No, not East L.A. Check that. South Central. I'll say. South Central. There's South a, South. a difference.
0: So he grew up in the vicinity, right? See, I think he ran across the border into San Diego but he wants to counter and say that he's a naturalized U.S. citizen but he has yet to show me paperwork when him and Obama can produce a birth certificate that's when I'll drop the suit.
1: We did not cross the border the border crossed us. Yeah,
0: in 1850.
1: Regardless of that.
0: So anyway, our Mexican national here pops. Through you, Lightning. <laughs> From the onset, it takes a little bit more of a realistic approach. You've got a lot more natural lighting. You've got a lot more of a realistic scenario. There's not a valet or a car company or car chopping company out there stealing Ferraris and Jaguars and Lamborghinis and chopping them up and selling them. And I don't even know what the end result was for Raul. Excuse me, German Raul. I don't know what German Raul's name was, but I don't know what his end game was. It never came full circle. It kind of reminded me of that South Park episode where you had the underpants gnomes. They had step one, collect underpants. Step two. And then step three was world domination. So we never got to what was actually step two in the rookie, but that was also another non-sequitur. We're looking for motivation. I guess I said I was done on the rookie, but I'm not.
1: Okay, how is one failed shipment of stolen cars his financial ruin to where now he's got to go around and kidnap cops for a ransom
0: exactly who was held responsible for the melee and the carnage that was on the interstate that night because they never covered it the other thing with the rookie that bugged the heck out of me was any other cop anybody not even a cop but anybody else took the law in their own hands like the two of them did would have been fired would have been court-martialed and would have been arrested and probably spent the rest of their days in prison so it made no sense for me for the film to end on a positive note with the rookie now being the grizzled veteran veteran and the grizzled veteran now being the police chief. It didn't make any sense whatsoever. And I think that puts into words why the film had no value. It just was nonsensical, non-sequiturs for two hours and then some over-the-top, pre-synthesized crap music and a bunch of people that should never work in the movie industry again listed for the next three minutes.
1: Is the rookie like herpes? It just never really goes away. It keeps coming back. Not that I would know. I've just heard.
0: How many good days do you have a month? (laughs)
1: I don't know, Jay. Is that where you require the
0: vitamins? Yes. So that's what people don't know is vitamin J helps to keep all that shit in check. Alright, so let's actually talk about the movie colors now. So from the own set of colors, it starts off, it's a lot more of a human approach to it. It's less prefab. I think at every point, every second of The Rookie, you knew you were watching a movie. And like you said yesterday and I think it's a great point with A Rookie, you paid 1990 prices and you went and spent two hours in the theater and you forgot about your mortgage, your wife, your girlfriend, your job, your asshole boss, the flat tire on your car. You went and spent that two hours to just forget, only to be awoken right back up into it, which is why I always think it's such a cool, cool thing while we're on this subject real quick. When you go and actually watch a movie in the theaters during the day, like a matinee or something, I love walking out of the theater and being blind, or having to take sunglasses in the theater, and then just having that two or three minute span where your eyes have to readjust to the light, and I feel like that's that slight moment of clarity that we're always hunting. So, if you were to go back in 1990 and go and sit and watch that movie in the theater, you would be so distracted by all the crap that was that film, that in that phase, while your eyes are readjusting to normal life again, you would slowly start to be reminded of all the crap things that you have in your life. You would welcome those crap things because they weren't the crap things that were the rookie. In a way, I'm kind of glad it was a bad film because it allowed you to escape for those two hours. And then when you came back to reality, you're like, you know what? That flat tire, that bitch of a girlfriend that I've got, all those things, really not that bad.
1: No, I think if I watched this movie in 1990, I'd start thinking about my flat tire and my overdue mortgage and my girlfriend cheating on me right after royal julius started talking in his fake german accent
0: i need to escape from this escape from the onset of Colors, you get that it's very formulaic. I'm going to go ahead and say this. I felt like the music in Colors, even the theme song Colors by Ice-T was jarring, didn't fit. It was mismatched. It was dumb. And then about the halfway point, they went from popular songs of the day or songs that were written for the movie that you would have heard on the radio and elsewhere. They went then to a composer and they went to a soundtrack and then they abandoned that soundtrack at about the 90% mark and then went back to traditional type songs. And so that highlights for me The overarching problem that I had with colors, and that was it was played out in segments. It was played out in little three to five minute segments. And then all those loose little ends and everything from those three to five minute segments were tied up. And then they went on to the next one. They introduced a couple of wrinkles, ironed them out, went on to the next thing. There was no continuity from beginning to end. It was just little bits of movie sewn together very coarsely to try to make one entire two hour film.
1: Here's the thing with colors. I think they reach too far. Most gang movies, most other gang movies that you see are very ethnic specific, like um, Hell, American Me, or Blood In, Blood Out. That is a Mexican gang movie. Boys from the Hood is a black gang movie. This movie tried to reach both ethnic groups. And that's, I think, just a bridge too far. You can't just encompass that in two hours without it being choppy and a little non sequitur and have it flow.
0: And you said this yesterday, and I think it was a good point uh, that I would not have been aware of. Back in that day and time, black gangs didn't hang out with other black gangs and they didn't hang out with Mexican gangs. And Mexican gangs were Mexican. They There weren't other members of other ethnicities in those gangs. It seemed like the Mexican gangs weren't so much gangs. They weren't even referenced by name. They were just, oh, well, here's just, just a bunch of Latinos and a ginger and there's a black guy and just hanging out. Time out. Where the hell did that ginger come from and why the hell did, was he in every scene seemed like.
1: Like when I was in middle school, there was this one poor, unfortunate white kid that his family moved from somewhere out of state. And I guess they didn't do their research and they moved into the ghetto and poor little Patrick had the roughest time, the roughest two months until they figured out a way to get the hell out of the ghetto. But that poor kid, oh my God.
0: So Patrick was the real life version of the ginger.
1: Yes. So it does happen occasionally, very rarely, but that ginger, poor little Patrick did not get jumped into a gang. He got jumped. But not into a gang.
0: <laughs> we beat the shit out of him. Nobody got his back. Everybody just took turns beating Patrick's ass. We say that now. That's what's so funny about us as teenagers in high school, in middle school. We're, we're just assholes of people. And then we get to a certain age and we go, God, we're assholes. And that's when we realize we've grown up and we're mature. But it doesn't stop the behavior or the, the meanness. It just makes you go back and hate who you were back then.
1: Right. Well. Or embrace it.
0: In your case, embrace it, yeah. One of the major overarching themes that really bugged me was there was no consistency from one to the other. We talked about it a little bit, maybe glossed over it a little bit more than we should have, but I didn't see the point to the movie The Rookie. You always, especially in films that are based in real life, more times than not, the screenwriter, the director, someone has an opinion or a point that they're trying to drive home. And even in the film like Zombieland, and I always go back to Zombieland, it took me a long time and a lot of years to appreciate the movie Zombieland because they kept taking these pl- political jabs in the first third of the film and I thought why are you taking political jabs there's no need there's no reason in any way shape or form to take these political jabs so early in the film it took me out of the film and I realized that was the point they were trying to drive home the way we were living our society in their opinion lend itself to us descending into Zombieland and reacting the way we did which with what's happened in the world in the last month and a half I think is maybe not as far off as we once thought it was but anyway I'm not talking about zombie land so you look for what is the point what are you trying to drive home what are you saying about LA gangs? What are you saying about the police force and their ability to manage and deal with gangs? Again, what are we point are we trying to make? And there was never a consistent point that was trying to be made. So then you go back and you take one step further back and you say this. Okay, so if you're not trying to make a specific point, are you just trying to say I'm just trying to document the chaos that is East LA, South Central, Compton, gangs, gang life, police, police having to interact, police really just being gang members with a badge as opposed to a gang member with a a colored bandana, and there's just utter chaos and there's going to be good and bad happening to both good and bad people. Most films like to adhere to some version of karma where good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. And it took us a long time in our movie history to get to a point where we would allow bad things to happen to good people and good things to happen to bad people. Again, what's the point of colors? Are we trying to introduce and show just basically document that chaos or are we trying to say here's the underlying way that we deal with the crisis that exists in that county?
1: Yeah, I think it was just, here's the story. Here's what happens here. There's no rhyme or reason. It's just cause and effect. Here it is, day and night, red and blue sometimes brown.
0: That even in itself was a little ugh. Alright, so I'm not saying you're right or wrong, but I want to spend some time talking about the character of Frog. The Frog character is introduced as more or less in the very beginning he's introduced as a good Samaritan. You don't really realize that he's part of a Mexican gang because they made a point of not ever naming the Mexican gang or having them associate. Really, it was just a group of Mexicans hanging out and of course a token black and a token ginger along the way. You introduce him and he almost seems like a good Samaritan. He's got a good relationship with Hodges, Robert Duvall's character. He's seems seems to be on the up and up, he makes mistakes, he lives by honor, he lives by a code, he's going to adhere to that code and he's going to challenge those around him to do better and to not descend into the gang life. He seems very righteous up to a point and then at the end of the film, Sean Penn's character and Robert Duvall's character, that task force brings down what we now realize is a Mexican gang hangout on the outskirts of the town and Duvall's character gets shot and is laying there dying and Sean Penn's character is over top of him and it zooms in or it shows Frog's character and he smiles. You want to say, Was he the Benedict Arnold character? Was he the one that was your dissident aggressor? I mean, what role did he play in that film? Because if he's playing nice to the cops and then he puts himself in jail, which we didn't realize at the time, that was a lot of the other problem with colors was you didn't really know what was going on until after the fact. But you realize then that Frog was putting himself in jail to help organize and mobilize the Mexican gang to act on Pac-Man. The gang acts, but not on Pac-Man. Pac-Man was the street name given to Sean Penn's character for his aggressive over the top way of dealing with other gang members and people in general revenge wasn't exacted on Pac-Man himself revenge was exacted on his partner whom according to everything else up in the film Frog had a great relationship with so was that relationship a lie and it was I'm gonna do what I've gotta do to prop myself up and prop my people up and do what's best for my gang and my culture and my my block and all that kind of stuff or what it didn't make any sense and there wasn't enough runtime left in the film to tie that loose end up like I said we had these mini segments that were tied up all along the way we get towards the end of the film and they run out of runtime. And so they can't tie up those last couple of loose ends. And I think that was a missed opportunity.
1: Well, it's ironic. His name was frog because there's an old proverb or story. It says that there was a scorpion trying to get across the river and he asked a frog for a ride to get across the river. So as they're going across the river, right before they get to the other side, to the bank, as they are getting to the bank, the scorpion stings a frog and kills it. And before he dies, the frog asked the scorpion why he stung him. And the scorpion said, because that's who I am. And that's what I do.
0: I think there may be some validity to that. I think every culture and every group, everybody has heard some version of that story, whether it be with a snake and a bird, whether it be with a frog and a scorpion, whatever it is, it's that whole thing. It's that whole take home message of you can't deny your true colors and you can't deny who you are. And that would have been a badass line for the movie. You can't deny your true colors. That would have been. Damn it. Why didn't they hire me 30 years ago? I don't know if you were your life 30 years ago. Doesn't matter. Point is,
1: they would have hired a four year
0: old vitamin Z. Missed opportunity. (laughs) <laughs> I see what you're saying. So maybe, you know, again, it's that whole thing, but it didn't make any sense. And again, they didn't leave enough runtime left in the film to kind of tie that loose end up. And I thought that was a, a huge missed opportunity. So you talked about how your opinion is now flipped with colors.
1: There was my initial watching it back in the day when it first came out. And, you know, I was much younger back then and I liked it. Now I watched it three or four days ago and I started looking at it a little more analytically, a little more as a film connoisseur, pretending. And I started to say, eh, well, this scene could have been shot better, or that scene could have shot better. But in reality, other than a selective few, who the hell goes into a movie and looks at it that way? <clears throat> I get that. I get that. Again, it's more of a suspension from reality. You go to watch a story, you go look at a story, and you're not so much interested in how the sausage is made. So to that effect, when I looked at it again last night, I just sat back and watched the story. And... It was a good story.
0: I'll let you have that because like I said, that's why I brought you in. I brought you in for that unique point of view and I wanted to talk about something that was close to you and near and dear to you because I wanted your honest perspective on it. And I see what you're saying and I agree with a lot of what you're saying, but from a very technical standpoint, there was, again, like I said with Rookie, I have no problem with Clint Eastwood's character in it. I have a problem with some of the decisions that were made from a directing standpoint. And I think a lot of that holds true for Dennis Hopper in the movie Colors. And like you said yesterday, he needs to stay in his lane. He doesn't know LA gangs like someone else may know LA gangs. He's not necessarily talking from experience so much as he's talking from what he's read in the papers, what he's seen on the TV, and maybe what slight interactions he's had on the interstate. Because I can't imagine Dennis Hopper hanging around South Central or East LA in his spare time. And I actually looked very hard when I watched the film the first time. I wondered if part of the reason why you had recommended the movie Colors was because you were a background character in it. So I very much did study the faces of a lot of the uh, the individuals. Um
1: I will be expecting my
0: three cent royalty checks to come in a person. Oh yeah, they're gonna be like, why all of a sudden? Like we've had <laughs> we've <sounds> had like- <laughs> we've had four watches on this film in the in the last twenty years. And now all of a sudden we've got six in the last week. Oh my god, it's it's happening. It's the end of the world. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it
1: is. As an overall telling of a story, it was a decent telling of a story. It was a wide, wide net. Typically, it's either black gangs, or Mexican gangs, or Asian gangs, or Armenian gangs, or Samoan gangs. Not all together. Never all together. Unless, unless you make a movie like the Warriors, where they're just running through gang after gang after gang, but there's really no in-depth look at each individual gang. It's just introducing them, dealing with them, and then getting on.
0: Well, and that's a good point. So maybe that was Dennis Hopper's take-home message and point to all of that was what you were supposed to do. Just become aware of them, become aware of the hypocrisy, become aware of the situations, become aware of the fact that those that are uniform to police and patrol may be contributing to the problem. I want to talk about Robert Duvall's character because when I watched the film the first time, and I still think my opinion is relatively unchanged through our conversation up to this point. For me, the one shining part of the movie Colors was Robert Duvall's character. I think he was by far the best actor in the film. He was the most complex character and he was that, like I talked about with last week's episode and Jamie Lee Curtis in the movie Terror Train, he was our moral and emotional compass. We looked to him and whether we wanted to admit it or not, we liked the way he dealt with people, treating them honestly. Hey, you treat me honestly. I'll treat you honestly. I'll do you this favor. You do me another favor very much a tit-for-tat working within the system instead of what Sean Penn's character wanted to do which was to work from the outside and be very destructive and very loud and intrusive. For Robert Duvall's character to meet the end that he met in the film was I think from Dennis Hopper's perspective was probably supposed to be a sad thing but in reality it wasn't. It was a confusing thing because again like I said with the character Frog Frog plays this good Samaritan he plays like he's a friend of the cops and then Hodges is sitting there gasping for breath he's not even dead yet he's still in the process of dying and you see frog smile. It again validated for you that that was who you wanted to seek out and be as your pillar of what to expect from the cops in that film. And then I think you got that affirmation later on when you had Sean Penn's character tell his new partner that he tried to relate that story about the cows and the bulls to him and doing it so choppily and and screwing it up and then not really seeing that the new rookie cop that he had. Didn't understand the story. To see that kind of made you think, okay, well maybe that was who our emotional center was supposed to be. But then it just seemed very quick. It seemed very abrupt all those loose ends that were created in that last segment of the film never got addressed really big missed opportunity there for me From that perspective i would have liked to have seen a couple things ironed out from a character study standpoint to help maybe flesh those characters out a little bit to show that maybe have frog have a couple of other instances along the way of him debunking the system kind of showing you in more ways than one his true colors
1: you know who has very short attention span gang members you're not going to get gang members to go watch a four hour movie called colors or colors one And then Colors, too.
0: Well, no, and I agree. I felt like of the two-hour runtime that was Colors, there was a lot of time wasted. I mean, we didn't need that three-minute music video at the beginning of the film where it's just them driving around East L.A. What the hell was that?
1: Hey, 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 easy. Those were Los Lobos. Relax. Oh,
0: oh, excuse me. Heaven forbid.
1: Hey, man. (laughs) Watch out. I still have some phone numbers.
0: I don't want the Mexican gangs to come after me. That was the main issue. I felt like it could have been done a little bit better. It was just too inconsistent a style, and the action sequences were so very dumb. So very dumb. There were two... two scenes in particular that really stuck out to me that really highlighted the inconsistency in the style of directing. And one of those was the Mexican gang had done something. They had made this plan and they were walking six abreast down an alleyway and you got a high up almost like a helicopter shot that slowly went down and zoomed in on the six of them and it was very long and you do those types of shots to slow down the action but in reality what you were doing was trying to show that we were on the precursor to a lot of activity that was going to take place in the next three to five minute segment of the film that was going to be wrapped up and it was too long and it was too drawn out it slowed the pacing down and it was almost like an intermission it was almost like hey you hadn't peed in an hour and a half you want to jump up and pee. We'll be here when you get back. And then the other scene that really got me was the scene that took place with Rocket, uh, Don Cheeto's character and the other black gang and they had a shootout. And the shootout was comically bad. Uzi's, I mean, they they probably let go 9,000 rounds of ammunition and only killed 8 people. And it was just too over the top and there was the scene where Don Cheeto's character had been shot and his Uzi was out of ammunition and he was trying to reload his Uzi while the blood member was trying to reload his Uzi. There were 6 people in a car just watching the activity behind the blood that was reloading his
1: r.i.p looney
0: tunes he reloads and they reload at the exact same time well what do we do now it's a tie both pull the trigger at the same time they both let out about 30 to 40 rounds both get about 5 or 6 shots in each other's chest and then they both fall over dead at the exact same time that may have been Dennis Hopper's attempt at some poetic justice that may have been his attempt at some irony but it was too heavy handed it was too dumb his ability to handle the action scenes up to that point in the film were subpar this just became a if it was again him trying to be ironic or be funny or be something it was a red herring because of his failed attempt up to that point it took you out of the action and made you laugh
1: better sex scene i guess you could say although
0: <laughs> i mean if you like male black asses a lot better scene oh because there
1: was two of them in there sean penn and maria conchita Alonso. <laughs> right rah <laughs> Exactly. Was,
0: yeah. Robert Duvall and Sean Penn's characters are going to plan this raid. They think they've got location of, of rocket. Don Cheadle's character. They knock on the door politely. Of course, you got to start politely. Hey guys, hey, it's the police. You know, we're out here whenever you get a chance. And then they open the door and they hear obviously sex sounds going on. So instead of you going, hey, you know, this is what's going on, they just right, you go left, I'll go right. And then they surrounded the room and now they're just watching. And then you get the one guy with the mustache. He goes, uh, uh, excuse me, uh, can you freeze? and the Guys, like, hold on, two more pumps. And okay, what? He gets shot. The most ridiculous line in the whole film where the most ridiculous scene with the acting was the, she goes, ah, oh, motherfucker! You can't motherfucker! You can't You can't motherfucker! And that was way too much, way too much. Another problem with these types of films, both The Rookie and with Colors trying to use real extras and real people, and then, hey, let me throw you a line. Can you say this line since you look authentic, because this is where you're from and this is who you are, and you realize these people aren't actors. And as a director, both Dennis Hopper and Clint Eastwood should have said, nope, I'm going to bring in a professional. I'm going to have that professional look like this person, or look like they fit in and say the line, and it's going to be a lot more convincing than trying to use my extras.
1: What is she supposed to say there, bud?
0: It wasn't what she said. It was how she said it because, okay, I was just getting screwed, literally. Right. Okay. Now I get interrupted by police, and then the guy that was just humping me has been shot in the back three times and is gasping for breath, and there's blood all over my bed sheets. now. I think I would not be over in the corner rocking, going, you motherfuckers kill him! You motherfuckers kill him! I think my reaction would be slightly different, and even if it wasn't a different reaction, I think I would have maybe not had such a ridiculous reaction to it but you know it's funny because her reaction to way she said that was very similar to the reaction of the first death in the film when Don Cheadle's gang the the Crips shoot out on the Reds and kill one of the Reds and then you had the mother of one of the Reds or the Bloods red blue
1: okay the Cincinnati Reds and the Boston Blue Sox. (laughs)
0: I I don't care but yeah so it was the same reaction from her you know he's dead he did okay well he's in a gang he's got a gun and there's another gang that doesn't like him and they have guns so this was the inevitable conclusion. Like you're having sex and it's relatively good sex by the sound of it. and It gets interrupted and then your boyfriend gets boyfriend or humper or whatever his title is for you. Gets killed. I would be a little bit more overwhelmed. Like I wouldn't expect to get shot in that situation. But if I'm in a gang house wearing my gang colors with a weapon, like I would expect to get killed. Like I said, just don't use your extras to try to fulfill those emotional voids that you as a director can't convey.
1: It is what it is. People get pretty hysterical, despite the fact that they know what their kid is, you know, who they hang around with and what they're doing. The emotions are still the same. And unfortunately, I've been in one or two of those where you're just left with a remnant of some mother or grandmother or sister just hysterically dealing with it. And it gets pretty loud and pretty uncontrollable. And that was pretty spot on. And even with a girl who was getting humped. That's that's kinda that was kinda spot on. And then her reaction was more geared towards Pac Man. That is where the focus became on pac-man being public enemy number one
0: but yet who survives at the end of the film which again highlights a problem with the storytelling in the inability to wrap up the loose ends created in that last segment why was he allowed to roam free and again if we're trying to say that it's all chaos it's all that he's going to get his due then it just seems like it was poor storytelling
1: i'm sorry jay i'm sorry i totally disagree (laughs) no
0: no no.
1: please please. this is not the time for war stories but I've seen some of those crime scenes, and I've seen some how some ghetto moms react, and that's pretty close to it. That's pretty spot on. You get pretty hysterical. Listen, here's how I see it. Robert Duvall Hodges was going to retire, so his way of policing was going to die with him. It had to get passed on to a new generation of cop, and that's how it got passed on. That's how the torch was passed. That had to happen. He had to die so that Pac-Man, Sean Penn, could fully engulf his theories, his thinking, his way of policing.
0: Gotcha. And mold it for a new generation and a new criminal and a new gang. Correct. Okay. That's a fair enough point, and I'll let you have it.
1: That's why that had to happen. Because Sean Penn went from having his very first line in the movie being, I'm a guardian of masculinity, to his last line, being retelling the story of, of the bulls and the cows from Robert Duvall, that's quite a transition. And I think that transition just turned when he was getting his ass kicked by High Top in the restaurant.
0: Yeah, and it took the older, wiser policeman to step in. And it wasn't that they tag team him and subdued him. It was Hodges came in, took care of the situation, and manhandled him. I agree with that. And then I think really the turning point for that was the scene that you highlighted that was funny the first time, but hit you a little differently the second time. And that was the scene after they had booked one of the guys that had all the cash on him and they had that fight in the office. And he said, You know where I live, bring a lunch. And I think that was, I'm starting to see the folly and the error in my ways. And that was that hard reset for him as far as becoming that new breed of kinder, gentler, yet not afraid to get down and dirty type that was going to be needed. Right. Okay. I like that. I like your first perspective on the film. This conversation has been kind of night and day from the conversation we had in the break room yesterday.
1: Yeah. Well, I had to go revisit it. I was a little unsettled in the fact that, well, I know I like this movie for a reason. Let me just sit back. And look at it, not with a fine microscopic view, but just step back and take an aerial view, if you will.
0: Now, when you watched the film both times, did the style of directing, did the style of the shots, did other things, were they for you as noticeable and intrusive as they were to me watching it when I watched it?
1: I don't know if I have that sensitivity to be able to distinguish that, if that makes any sense. I just don't have that lens where I can distinguish between this style or that style or this angle was too intrusive or this wasn't intrusive enough, if you will. Again, I'm a layman. I'll just watch a movie to watch a movie.
0: Not to put you on the spot, because this is not something that I've mentioned that we were going to talk about before, but your son said, and talked to him last night. He came into work. He said something, and I want to kind of put you on the spot a little bit and ask you this question. He said he could visibly see a change in your personality and perspective and everything the first time you watched the film last week, and that it took you somewhere, and that your son was almost scared of where it took you and how you reacted to that. Was that film that powerful to you, or were there other things going on just out of curiosity? You don't grow
1: up somewhere like I grew up and not have a little PTSD There were a lot of times where I was afraid for my life and watching something like that just kind of takes you back there and brings things out and starts your own movie. You start seeing your own movie in your head and some scenes and and things that happened. It it just kind of took me back and you know, there were some things that were a little difficult.
0: Going back into your own life, drawing from your own experiences, did that take you out of the film or did that help reaffirm things that you were seeing on the screen?
1: It helped reaffirm things I was seeing on the screen.
0: I think if we can rubber stamp our discussion on colors, from a film standpoint, there's a lot of opportunities. From a mood, from a feeling, from a nostalgia, from a setting standpoint, it's a very powerful film, but powerful more based on the content of what it represents, not what it is representing and not certainly in the style that it's choosing to represent itself.
1: Yes, I can agree with that. But again, I'm kind of biased here. I mean, I, I'm very well versed in the quote unquote colors lifestyle. I've been through it, I've seen it, I lived it. To take a fine tooth comb and start looking at the film angles and, and the direction, the style of shooting and, and the soundtrack and the uh, score and the editing and Uh, that's not me.
0: And that's why I'm glad I brought you in the studio. And I'm glad that's why we talked about these two films. Uh, That's, that's what I was kind of hoping would be the direction of the conversation. That's why I like, and I still appreciate your contrarian point of view. I appreciate the fact that you are a methodical thinker. You think things out before you say, and certainly before you act. So I think that perspective, while quite different from my own and your conclusions, while different from my own are valid. And I think that's pretty cool. I haven't edited it. Obviously we haven't done anything, but I'm pretty proud of the way this episode and this conversation has turned out. I
1: think it came out well, except for the long, drawn-out discussion of our first movie, The Rookie.
0: It's like I said, it's so hard. When it's a bad film, it's so easy to just jump in and just say, well, this could have been done better. This needed to be done better. This, that, and the other. So for the the time that you and I have talked to have spent the majority of that time on The Rookie, I guess reaffirms what you said. And that is that Colors is the better film because there's less to talk about. There's less to contribute to how we could have made it better or things that happened to us in the viewing of the film. So maybe us spending so much time on it was just reaffirming the fact that it was, in fact, the lesser of the two films.
1: Right. Yes. Absolutely.
0: So I don't think it's going to get any better than that. So let's bring this episode to a close. This has been Vitamin J. And Pops. We'll see you next week. That is enough. This has been the Vitamin J Talks Movies Podcast. It's got issues. Serious psychological issues. We didn't listen! Oh, no! Oh, God, don't, no, please! Well, I guess I'll call you. Yeah. me yeah. call. Yeah, you have your... I have your information, so... That was real. Dude. come out, I'm burning, I do are need to burn. Come out, come out.